It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Peter Bruckner, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Evan. Very well. All, uh, all the better for talking to you. Well, that's very nice of you to say. And I should really say Professor Peter Bruckner, O-A-M. No, this Peter's fine. O-M-G, because I noticed you've, it looks like you've got more letters after your name than the alphabet and more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, costs a bit of money, those degrees, but, you know, you, you can pick them up uh, cheaply on the internet these days. <laughs> Well, I think it might have paid off, Peter, because your life is, well, from my perspective at least, an extraordinary one that you've led. And you've worked as a sports medicine physician for an awfully long time and worked with some of the world's elite sporting clubs and on a national level, certainly in Australia, uh, Liverpool Football Club, uh, the National Hockey and Swimming Sides, the Collingwood and Melbourne football clubs and the Australian cricket team, which as a cricketer is very close to my heart, amongst yep. a bunch of other ones that I'm sure I haven't included in there as well. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, living the dream really. <clears throat> and I, uh, you know, I dreamt when I was a kid of, uh, of you know, walking out to bat at Lords and, you know, playing on the MCG and uh, all that sort of stuff. And, uh there was just one slight problem with that, is I didn't have any talent, so uh, I had to come up with a plan B, find <laughs> a way to uh, to uh, get paid to watch sport, and uh, I managed to managed to do that. So it's, yeah, I've been very very fortunate with uh, with my career. Managed to to work with some uh, some great teams, some great athletes. Um, but you know, as much as I've worked with great uh, you know athletes and professional people, you know, <clears throat> my you know some of my most enjoyable times have been just working with uh, with your average. Um, athlete or a runner or a jogger or an amateur footballer or whatever who uh, for whom sport is just as important if not more so than the person who's being paid hundreds of thousands of, uh, of dollars a year and, uh, and getting them back uh, back doing what they love doing uh, is enormously rewarding as well. Yeah and look I think it's no accident that you ended up doing what you did Peter. I, uh, I really admire the work that you've done over the years and uh, have only sort of gotten to know you really in the last six or seven months just through the grapevine and then had the, the pleasure of being able to connect with you and, and learn more about your background. And the, you know, as a massive cricket nuffy, as I've mentioned many, many times, um, the work that you did with the Australian cricket team, um, it, it's not in any official memoirs yet, but I'm sure it will be. And we can, can we basically attribute that major Ashes win to the time that you spent in the Australian cricket team? Oh, absolutely. Single-handedly. You know, I bowled well, I better well. <laughs> No, it was a great time with it with the cricket team, and they're a, they're a good. Uh, they've copped a fair bit of flack o- over time, but uh, good bunch of guys, uh, good staff, uh, good uh, you know, good culture. They worked hard. They got a you know culture of hard work, and um, yeah, look, you know, they obviously had that little indiscretion in uh, in South Africa a couple of years ago, which was uh, yeah. after I'd finished with them. I uh, hesitate to uh, to mention because clearly <laughs> they were oh, missing my moral guidance, uh, but um, you know that. I can understand that, how that happened, and there's enormous pressure and, and stress involved with uh, elite sport. Everyone sort of thinks, "Oh, great! You know, this is would it be fantastic to be playing uh, Test cricket or professional football or whatever?" But uh, it comes with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of you know people looking very closely at you, and uh, you know, you really can't. Uh, you're under the microscope, and and you're under a lot of pressure, and. Um, Especially uh, batsmen. Batting must be one of the, you know, you're a batsman, Levin, are you? You're a bit of a batsman. I mean, it's one yeah, must be one of the, the worst it. things, the worst things in the world. You know, I mean, you, you know, you walk out there, and if you're, you're playing professionally, you know, you have got the camera on you as a walk out. You know, yeah. 
Chase one ball, you get a dodgy decision. You know, you, there you, at you go again. First ball duck, quack, quack, quack. You know, you walk all the way back, and um, and you know that's it for another week. You know, and it's uh, you know, there's not many things where uh, you only get one chance at uh, at things. You know, if you're playing footy, you spill a mark or you miss a goal. You know, you're uh, you're there uh, two minutes later, but. Uh, Batting is uh, is very tough, and so it's you know there's a lot of psychological uh, stress on uh, on all elite sports people, but I, I reckon cricket's uh, right up there. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I learned an interesting number recently with regards to even the physical stresses of of fast bowlers and the load that goes through their front landing leg, um, and some of the MRI scans that they've been able to do have shown that the, the, the shin bone or the bone in the leg at least has, uh, has become one of the most incredibly strong bones just because of that whole repetition. Have you, do you know much about that side of things? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, fast bowling. I mean, really, who invented fast bowling? It's the most ridiculous activity when you think about it. You know, I mean, you run up, you know, flat out, sort of stop, you know, pivot um, and, you know, hurl the ball down. And, and uh, so it's just... Ridiculous. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you know, pitching at baseball, you sort of get that. You know, you're sort of throwing a ball. You know, that that sort of makes sense. But fast bowling, really, it, it's, a, it, it's a horrendously demanding activity. And there's a very good reason why there's only been a handful of people have ever been able to do it consistently at 150 Ks and, uh, and do it well. Uh, incredibly difficult, incredibly demanding physically as much as any athlete, uh, I think. And uh, not surprisingly, their, their bodies uh, break down pretty regularly. Yeah, and I think just one of those players that springs to mind is someone that I've been a, a big fan of for a long time and I know uh, has been a, a dominant player in Australian cricket and overseas playing in, in IPL and some of the T20 competitions as well. Shane Watson is a gentleman who uh, you did some work with um, with regards to some of the problems he was having. Would you mind talking us through some of the things that you got up to with him? Oh, well, Shane, uh, Shane's an incredibly had an amazing cricket career. and um, uh, But he's always uh, struggled with injury and he's always struggled with his weight and, and maybe the two may be uh, better related. And um, so uh, from an injury point of view, we uh, sort of tackled uh, some of his issues on a more of a sort of preventive uh, measure and particularly worked on his sort of uh, back and, and glutes and he had a lot of muscle, uh, lower leg muscle strains and so on. But uh, we seem to reduce them uh, with, with, with working on uh, on the back and, uh, and glutes and so on. But in particular, his weight, I mean, he was always, Shane loves his food and uh, he's always been a, a, a massive eater. I mean, he got dinner with Shane Watson and, you know, he has three main courses and uh, you have one, you know, and uh but um, he's got a big appetite, but he's always struggled with his weight. And, and, uh, and the only way he's been able to control his weight was to basically starve himself. And, uh, you know, he would, uh, in, in, as a result, would be miserable. And um, what we did was show him a way where he could uh, eat uh, as much as he wanted to and eat, and eat well, and yet uh, still lose weight and control his weight. And that was with, uh, with uh, reducing the amount of carbs he was eating and, uh, and increasing the, the healthy fats, basically going up a low-carb, healthy-fat uh, way of eating, and, uh, and it made a huge difference to him. Uh, uh, got his weight down, uh, but enabled him to uh, to keep enjoying his, uh, his food. So he's a much happier boy. Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, just, just from a time frame point of view, what year was that that you were working with Shane? Uh, we started about 2012, 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and he's still going strong now. You know, he's still playing, uh, you know, uh, IPL and, and other uh, forms of T20 cricket, uh, you know, and he's, uh, he's getting on a bit now and he's still going well. Well, this is the, the thing that I was keen to discuss with you, Peter, because I'm involved still playing cricket at a premier cricket club in Melbourne, Melbourne University, a very proud player for this will be my 15th year next year. And there is young men who will be watching this, not just at my club, uh, but at clubs around wherever, that uh, in their late teens, early 20s, and I seem to have noticed a massive influx in the last few years of young men that are seemingly in good physical shape that are breaking down with these innocuous injuries and spending months and months and months rehabbing only to, for it to, to relapse when they start playing again. What, what is happening? What's going on for that to happen, do you know? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. If we if we knew the answer to that, you know, we'd uh, we'd we'd solve a lot of problems, wouldn't we? Um, look, I, I think I think you're right in that I think uh, sort of as you call them innocuous injuries, you're probably talking about you know muscle strains, mild muscle strains in, in particular, you know, calves and, and hamstrings and quads and so on. Facet joint injuries like back Facet joint, yeah, yeah low like... back uh, problems. Well, certainly. Certainly, with with fast bowlers, uh, if we just take them as a as a group, I mean, I mentioned it's such an unnatural activity and does put enormous stress on the on the lumbar spine. Um, and it seems that, in particular, the lumbar spine does not mature properly until you're about twenty five years old. It's probably the last part of the skeleton to really mature properly. And uh, <clears throat> what you find in in fast bowlers is that the younger ones, especially the good ones and the fast ones invariably uh, break down with these uh, lumbar spine injuries. In particular, they're a, they're a stress fracture or what we call a PARS stress fracture. Yeah. And um, it's almost a badge of honour. You know, pretty much every single fast bowler has, uh, gets one of these uh, injuries um, because, you know, I mean, we, I know, and, and as a result of, of that, we've tried to put in guidelines for junior fast bowlers. Uh, you know, at certain ages, you're only allowed to bowl certain amounts and we cop a lot of flack from the, uh, the old school about, uh, about that. But the uh, reality is that we know that if they, if they overload at the ages of sort of 16, 17, 18, 19, they're going to develop these, uh, these stress factors. And uh, even with these guidelines in place, they're, they're still doing that. So it seems that uh, you really can't, have a big load as a fast bowler until you're 24, 25. And you look at all the, the current group of fast bowlers, you know, Mitchell Starks, James Pattinson, James Pattinson, all these guys, they all had those stress fractures in their early 20s. Uh, Pat Cummins, obviously, a classic uh, example. And it wasn't really until they got to their sort of mid-20s that their bodies were strong enough to uh, to cope with, with the load. And, and historically, uh, there's been there's only been one fast bowler in Australia who's played a, a large number of tests before the age of sort of 23 or 24, and that was Graham McKenzie back in the, in the 1960s, who I had the pleasure of sitting next to at, uh, at Lord's uh, uh, last year at the World Cup. But um, What did he used uh, to eat? Yeah. What was his diet like back well, in the day? Do you remember? Did you talk to him? Way back in the 60s, you know, it was pretty old school. You know, it, it wasn't a lot of uh, the way we eat now, and, and whether that's a factor or not, uh, you know, you could uh, – you, you know, you could mount that argument, but and he was in that old school of, uh, of you know, steak and eggs and uh, and, and you know, fruit and veg and uh, and dairy and so on, and, and not, uh, you know, not too much of the processed takeaway sort of junk food that, that just didn't exist in the in the in the you know late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties when uh, when Graham was uh, was playing. But um, so you know, fast bowling is a hugely demanding, uh, and it's not surprising that they get injuries. So you've really got to got to uh, nurse them along uh, until they until they get into their sort of you know mid mid twenties twenty four twenty five before you can really load up uh, fast bowlers. Yeah. But interestingly, uh, you know, it, a lot of um, other cricketers, you know, non fast bowlers, are getting these issues with hamstrings and uh, and so on. Partly, I think cricket has changed, as you know, in your fifteen years of playing cricket, lab. And you know, I mean, cricket has changed enormously. It was a pretty sedate sure. sort of uh, sport back in the in the day, and there uh, wasn't a lot of sort of high intensity activity, sprinting involved. Now, with uh, with initially one day cricket, and then more recently with T Twenty cricket, you know, it's uh, it's quite a high intensity sport now, and bursts of a uh, of really high intensity. You're expected to. You know, you can't just sort of lope around in the field. Everything is sort of 100 miles an hour and so on. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that there are more of these injuries now than there were back in the back in the day, uh, I suppose. Yeah. And maybe we don't, uh, maybe we don't train well enough for it. Um, you know, cricketers probably don't do enough um, good training, good uh, in particular sprint training. Uh, what tends to happen is you go to the nets on uh, on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. You know, you uh, you have a bat. You know, you might a uh, bit of a bowl. You know, bowl a few spinners or, or whatever. You might do a bit <laughs> of catching. You know, a bit of catching in the, you know in the slips or catching in the outfield. But you very you know you don't do a lot of running between the wickets at full pace. You don't do a lot of sprinting uh, to to get uh, ground balls in the in in the field. And but then come come the weekend, you know, you have to. Uh, Sprint at one hundred percent at times to uh, to make your ground, and you have to chase balls at one hundred percent, and we're yeah. just not conditioned for that. And uh, unless you condition your body to uh, be used to sprinting, then uh, you're going to be in trouble. So I think it's partly 
con- lack of conditioning uh, in cricket that uh, that is the problem. Yeah, look, and I think you're right. And I certainly noticed the improvements in training over the, over the years at Melbourne University and, and not having played at other clubs. But in order for them to compete, they'll, they'll be doing similar stuff. Certainly throwing programs have been introduced to help preserve shoulders. Um, a lot more of that higher intensity stuff has been led by uh, head coach Anthony Keeley. Uh, the club won a, um, the club championship this year and we're able to do that, I think, by li- limiting the amount of injury through player management, load management, that type of thing. So they, they seem to be maybe picking up some more of that international level training philosophy, um, which has been really good. And just something from an anecdotal or N equals one point of view, um, I, I used to be a fatty. I've told you some of my background and lost a significant amount of weight. But the the major thing that I noticed was when I hit my mid-30s, and I'll be 40 in June of 2020, when I hit my mid-30s, I never really suffered any kind of injuries at all. But I started breaking down and I would do hamstring strains or minor, minor tears, you know, quad strains. I did a facet joint injury as well, as I mentioned. And I would spend, I'd miss out half the season and I'd spend thousands of dollars on physio and chiropractic and remedial and all kinds of stuff. And the major, major difference for me was the removal of refined carbohydrate out of my diet and in particular gluten and since that time which was four years ago i haven't sustained any of those injuries at all and the only injuries that i have picked up were during 100 kilometer ultra marathons where i did like my my iliotibial band went you know because i'd run 50 kilometers further than i'd ever run before in my life up and down hills and, and I'm just curious to know why that might be. Why, if I've been able to reduce maybe the inflammation in my nutrition, is my body responding in a way that's allowing me to be and act the fittest that I've ever been? Well, I think you just hit the, uh, the right word then, inflammation. And uh, we're beginning to understand more and more the importance of inflammation. I mean, everyone's known about inflammation. You know, you have a red, hot, swollen uh, knee or, you know, you get a wound that gets infected or inflamed or whatever. But it seems that there's more and more evidence of sort of low-grade chronic inflammation being the cause of a whole heap of different uh, medical conditions from diabetes to obesity to uh, um, to mental health issues, to uh, and, and increasingly to, to musculoskeletal injuries, to osteoarthritis, to uh, to and even uh, to tendon tendon injuries, uh, tendinopathies, and maybe even for muscle injuries, as you've talked about. We don't yeah. have a lot of evidence for that, but it sort of all fits together. And um, so it seems that this chronic low-grade inflammation is uh, is a key to a lot of this. So what causes inflammation? Well, there's a whole bunch of things that cause inflammation. Um, and uh, one of which is, is diet, is poor diet. In particular, high levels of sugar, um, high levels of, uh, of uh, the omega-6 polyunsaturated oils, which are the vegetable oils that we, uh, we all sort of uh, cook in and all sort yeah. of, you know, fast food and takeaway food is sort of uh, cooked in. Um, and for certain individuals, um, you know, it varies. Some people will, will find gluten very inflammatory. Some people find dairy very inflammatory, et cetera, et cetera. Some people find certain, certain vegetables and fruits containing lectins and so on will be inflammatory. So there's not one particular pattern. I think everyone finds sort of sugar and, and vegetable oils uh, pretty inflammatory. And, yeah. um, and I think that's a major factor in, uh, in, in injuries um, and, uh, and in recovery. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, that uh, you're, you're able to do all this uh, – uh, this long distance stuff now, and you recover well, and uh, people, you know, have a lot less soreness after activity if they're if they're avoiding these uh, inflammatory foods, if you like. So, yeah. you know, I really uh, promote a, like a really a, an anti-inflammatory diet, if you like, you know, which is very much a, a real food sort of a diet and avoiding processed foods. Well, you're an author, and you released a, a wonderful book. I presume it was this year or late last year, called "A Fat yeah, Lot of Good." Yep, which I've I've read cover to cover if you can on a on an iPad, and it goes into a lot more detail of what you're talking about now. But what overview can you give us of this phenomenal book that I would encourage everyone to read? By the way, 
Oh, that's that's very kind of you. Well, it all stemmed. I mean, it, it stemmed from my own personal experience, Lemon. Uh, I mean, I was uh, 2012. I was uh, living and working in the in the UK, working at uh, the Liverpool Football Club. And um, if you'd asked me then, you know, <clears throat> you know, how you how are you, Doc? You know, you're healthy, you're well. I'd have said, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Um, you know, I'd uh, I'd just turned sixty. Um, I, uh, um, you know, I had a, what I thought was a healthy diet. I exercised regularly. My blood sugars were fine. You know, I, I was functioning perfectly well. Um, the reality was that I probably wasn't quite as healthy as I thought I was, and. Um, for a start, I had a family history of type 2 diabetes. My father had developed type 2 diabetes at exactly that age, and I was yeah. pretty determined not to not to go down that path. And, you know, if you'd, I'd have done anything to avoid the, 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 the shit he had to put up with. Um, and then um, and I was overweight, uh, obese, really. I was uh, borderline obese. And then like many uh, middle-aged men, and, and I consider 60 middle-aged, I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Just getting um, started, Peter. <laughs> that's right. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's the new 50, as they say. Um, you know, like many people of that age, I'd probably put on, you know, half a kilogram a year for, for 30 years. You know, you just slowly, just every year, just get a little bit, uh, your belt gets a little bit tighter and you, and to the point where your kids are starting to, you know, poke you in the, uh, in the guts and say, you know, come on, uh, you know, come on, Dad, what about it? Hey, you know, shoulders and say, uh, you know, well, hang on a minute, you know, I'm on a good diet, I'm a low-fat diet, I exercise, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not my fault. So, uh, and, and I had, uh, I'd had a condition called fatty liver for, for a number of years, which I'd ignore, like a typical doctor, I'd, I'd ignored and uh, I didn't really understand it and I figured I was on a low-fat diet, so, you know, I'd ignore that. I had high triglycerides. So in retrospect, I was clearly pre-diabetic. I mean, you know, I was well on the way to following my father's footsteps. Uh, and by now, I'd certainly be a, a fully-fledged diabetic if I hadn't uh, hadn't changed. And around that time, I, I started to hear a few whispers that there were some colleagues of mine, in particular a guy called Professor Tim Noakes in South Africa, who's an old friend of mine, who were suggesting that maybe we'd got this whole diet thing wrong and maybe it was carbohydrates where the problem is not fat. Because, as you know, we'd all been on this low-fat diet for 40 years, the whole of Western society, and, you know, we'd yeah. switched from butter to margarine and low-fat milk and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, I'd been, you know, I'd been doing all that religiously like everyone else. And um, so I... Um, I took note of this, and because Tim Noakes is a super smart guy, probably the smartest guy I've ever come across, and uh, and he'd be, he'd challenged a few, you know, uh, myth, sort of long-standing uh, thoughts in in sports science previously, and, and always been proven right. And uh, but I must admit, I thought this time now he'd really lost his, you know, lost his marbles. You know, what do you, you know, how can you suggest that the whole world has been wrong for the last uh, forty years? Because Tim had developed type two diabetes himself, despite being a avid marathon runner and a super fit guy and, uh, yeah. and, and couldn't, couldn't work it out. And, um, and so he read some stuff and, and came to that conclusion and, and basically reversed his diabetes himself by just uh, going on this low-carb diet. And so I heard about this and I thought, oh, that's, that's weird, you know. So I thought I needed to read some, you know, I needed to find out more about this. So I read uh, a book by Gary Taubes, an American uh, author called Good Calories, Bad Calories, and, and this book just blew me away. I mean, it just freaked me out in a way because it talked not about not only about the sort of relative merits of fats and carbs but it talked about the politics of how the low fat movement had won out over the low carb movement way back in the 60s and 70s which i'd always assumed was on the basis of you know good science and uh eminent sort of and turned out to be a uh, very dodgy science and all about money and politics and uh, and and the u.s agriculture industry and um I remember going to bed at night after reading this book and I'd be thinking, no, no, this couldn't be, no, this couldn't be right. Like, we couldn't have had this so wrong for all this time. Wow. And uh, the more I read, the more I thought, my God, you know. So I thought, okay, it's time for uh, some science, okay. Now I'm a scientist, you know, time for, uh, for an experiment. Um, but as a scientist, you also know that experiments with an N equals one are a waste of time, except when the one is you. So I decided it was time for an N equals one experiment on myself to find out about this low-carb diet. So day one, I got all my bloods done. And uh, uh, sure enough, you know, high triglyceride, fatty liver, all that sort of stuff. And then I went on this low-carb, healthy-fat diet. I decided to do it for three months, 13 weeks. 
And uh, so I stopped all the sort of sugars and starches, no more pasta, rice, bread, potato, soft drinks, uh, fruit juices. Um, what else did I, I went, you know, back to, back to butter from margarine. Uh, and I basically went back to eating the way that probably my grandparents had eaten. You know, so lots of, uh, of fresh fruit and veg, meat, fish, dairy, you know, full-fat dairy, eggs, you know, been demonised for years, you know, full of cholesterol, all those, all those you know, egg white-only omelettes, you know, oh, horrible, you know, <laughs> tasteless, horrible stuff. Anyway, yeah. so I went back to eating uh, that way. The only fruit that I had was berries um, and I had nuts and seeds and so on. So I decided to do that for, for three months and I was pretty strict. I went, you know, I was determined to do it. So the first thing I noticed was that uh, I stopped being hungry. It was quite dramatic. I mean, I used to have my cereal for breakfast and then by 11 o'clock in the morning, I'd be starving. I'd say, you know, must be lunchtime soon. Where's a muffin? Where's a cereal bar or whatever? Yeah. Terrible. So instead, <clears throat> instead I'd have, uh, <clears throat> you know, eggs and bacon or, or a, or a full-fat yogurt and some nuts and berry, and I just wouldn't be hungry all day. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I'd go, I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to probably eating two meals a day. If ever I got a bit peckish during the day, I'd just have a handful of nuts or some cheese or something like that, and I was fine. So that was the first thing. And then uh, then I started to, uh, to feel better and feel more energetic. Um, my running got, uh, got better. Uh, my concentration was better. Um, and, uh, and I kept losing weight. You know, every week I'd weigh myself every Monday morning. And, you know, first week I'd lose a kilogram. you think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, a bit of, fluid and beginner's luck yeah. and so on, every week I just kept on losing, and which is really motivating because, you know, hey, you're feeling great and every week you get on the scale, say, hey, I'll keep doing this. Yeah. So at the end of the 13 weeks, I lost 13 kilograms. Uh, 13 weeks, the, 13 kilos in 13 yeah. weeks. I was never hungry. I ate really well the whole time and, um, yeah, felt great. And then I got my bloods done and... Uh, my insulin levels had come back to normal. My triglycerides were down to normal. My fatty liver that I'd had for 10 years had disappeared. Completely normal fatty liver results. Unbelievable. Wow. So ironically, I got rid of my fatty liver by eating more fat. And it was just so hard to get your head around. I mean, because we've been told for 40 years, fat is bad. And all of a sudden, trying to get your head around the fact that you're allowed to eat full fat dairy and eggs and, and you didn't have to trim the, the fat off your meat and things. That was, that was the hardest thing. Yeah. I really struggled with that. I really struggled with that, but got used to it and you saw the results. And so, um, so I was, you know, I just blown away by, by this. And it, I also found it quite confronting because it confirmed what I've been reading that we actually had things wrong all this time. And yet 99.999% of, uh, of other members of the medical profession and uh, all the experts are still pushing this idea that fat is bad and that uh, carbohydrates are, are good. And, um, and that really worried me. So I think when you make a discovery like that about yourself, you've got two choices. You know, you can either just say, great, you know, I'm feeling really good. I'm just going to keep going like this and, you know, stuff everyone else. Or you can say, well, you really had a, a duty almost to sort of talk to people about it and try and spread the word. And I guess, you know, as a doctor, you have, you know, your philosophy is that you're trying to help people and you're trying to make people healthier and better. And I discovered a way of doing that, and I felt sort of what was my duty really to my responsibility to to get out there and spread the word. And uh, so, really, I started uh, talking, uh, giving talks, and writing stuff, and uh, and everything. And then, um, you know, I was sort of uh, doing a lot of that. And then a couple of years ago. Penguin, the uh, publishers came to me and said, oh, you know, would you like to write a book? And and, and I sort of said, nah, look, really, you know, the, the last thing the world needs is another bloody diet book, you know what I mean? <laughs> Go to a shop and there's hundreds of them. And um, I guess they convinced me that um, there was there were very few by doctors and, and, and none by Australian doctors and that, uh, you know, my I had a bit of a profile and so that might help get the message out there. So they convinced Absolutely, me it was a good yeah. thing to get the message out there. And, um, you know, by and large, uh, you know, it, it probably uh, was, a, you know, in retrospect, it was a good idea. The interesting thing was that <clears throat> I wrote the book in three weeks. I, I just wrote it <laughs> and, uh, wrote, and uh, wrote this, you know, 200-page book in three weeks. It was amazing because 
obviously I had it all in my head and I'd been collecting, you know, lots of articles and, and lots of literature over the, over the years. So I had everything there. And, and I clearly, you know, knew what I wanted to write and I just sort of wrote. I just went down the beach. We had a little shack down the, down the beach in the middle of winter and no one else was around and, uh, and uh, the highlight of my day was going down to the, the coffee shop and getting the takeaway coffee and uh, that was about it. And um, I just wrote uh, 16 hours a day for, uh, for three weeks and, uh, and got it done. And, wow, um, like the Forrest Gump of, uh, of writing. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I'm a terrible typist too, so you know it was uh, wasn't great. But anyway, um, so yeah, so it was really the message I wanted to get out there that um, you know that uh, real food is is the right way to go. That uh, everything we've been told really for the last four years is is pr- probably wrong, and uh, we've got to rethink uh, rethink things and um, and particularly you know that the processed foods with sugars and grains and 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 vegetable oils are. Uh, yeah. Uh, bad news, and probably the reason we're we're just been getting fatter and sicker ever since. I mean, it, it's amazing, really, because in the last forty years, every year the statistics show we've got uh, fatter and, and sicker. And yet, you know, you'd think in that time, you know, people would say, "Well, hang on a minute, you know, maybe we're doing something wrong." But oh no, everyone just sort of keeps going along the same old way, and, and just seem to accept the fact that you know we we get fatter and sicker, and that you know, two million people in Australia have got diabetes, type two diabetes, and, and you know, a third of Australia has got fatty liver and then 4.2 million Australians have cardiovascular disease and all these sort of things. We just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, that's that's life. And yet there's a good reason why uh, why this happened. And and these things are reversible. That's the uh, the amazing thing is, and, and we've shown now that, you know, a disease like type 2 diabetes, which is so common and the cause of so much uh, so many problems with eyes and, uh, and heart and kidney and uh, and, and feet um, is actually reversible. I mean, it's yeah. really exciting. And yet the majority of doctors still are not aware of that and still just hand out tablets and say, you know, we can't fix this. We'll just have to uh, try and control it as best we can. And yet, you know, there's evidence now that with a low-carb diet, we can reverse type 2 diabetes. So all these sort of things make you, you know, make me very passionate and enthusiastic about trying to get the message out there and the, the book and, and the talks that I give and the YouTubes and so on. And now, of course, this podcast, uh, you know, which will be massive, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, so that's what, I'm, uh, that's what I'm trying to do these days with my, uh, with my career. I'm sort of winding down the sports medicine part of my, uh, my career. Um, I don't uh, work full time with any teams anymore. I finished with the cricket team uh, two or three years ago and just do a little part, bit of part-time consulting now. But um, my passion now really is nutrition and, and getting people to, to eat better. Um, <clears throat> we started a charity a couple of years ago called Sugar by Half, the aim of reducing the amount of added sugar in Australia by a half. I mean, the average Australian has about 16 teaspoons a day of added sugar, 16 teaspoons a day. And the World Health Organization, uh, for all its, uh, all its problems, suggests um, you know a maximum of six per day, really. And uh, so we're way, way too high. So we're uh, one of our aims is to try and get uh, get that sugar levels down. Sugar is not the only thing, but it's it's a big factor. And if we can reduce the amount of sugar uh, down to those WHO levels, uh, it'll have a massive impact on the health of Australians. So we're uh, we're working pretty hard at that. Yeah, and, and uh, I'd like to explore this in a little bit more detail in a minute. I think the <clears throat> the the numbers around sugar um, and even even added sugar in any form, in my opinion, is uh, it's an unnecessary nutrient. It's not even a I don't even know if nutrient's the right word for it. Um, <laughs> for the for the viewers and the listeners, I'm I'm currently day sixteen of doing a an N equals one experiment. I have eliminated z- like every single plant matter out of my diet. I'm only eating meat, water, and uh, a couple of black coffees a day. And I have had three small teaspoons of raw honey over the course of the uh, the period already and have been doing my blood work with a digital ketone meter and a digital blood glucose monitor as well and have been tracking my health for a long time and forever my fasting blood sugar has been between 5.7 to 5.9 even as high as uh, low sixes which put me in that pre-diabetic state and since i've been adopting this 
well, low carb or zero carb almost, my fasting blood sugar sits between 3.9 to 5. Um, in fact, it bought a 5.6 reading just early this morning after a, a fasted run. So I ran with no food, no water, no coffee. And how come I haven't died? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the traditional teaching is that, you know, if you don't have uh, um, fruit and vegetables, you know, you get scurvy, you die, all that, uh, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and the, the growing carnivore movement uh, is proving that, uh, that to be a fallacy um, and that uh, people seem to be doing very well. Certainly uh, some people, particularly those with autoimmune disease and so on, seem to be thriving on a, uh, on a carnivore, uh, carnivore diet. Uh, it's not for everyone, obviously. Yeah. But, um, uh, but as you say, you know, traditional teaching say, says that we should not be able to survive on, on a carnivore uh, diet because there's, uh, there's uh, very little vitamin C, for instance, and, and other sort of uh, vitamins. But um, it seems that the, uh, when you do eat carnivore, the theory is, is that your uh, need for, those, for some of those vitamins um, is markedly reduced. And that's why uh, you can uh, do so well on it. So uh, it's fascinating. It's really uh, you know, changing the whole way we think about, uh, about food and, and about, uh, about our priorities. Um, as I said, I, I don't think carnivores for everyone. I think, you know, uh, um, there's certainly a huge advantage to, to low sugar and, and carnivore is probably the, the ultimate low-carb uh, you know, low diet. But yeah. um, the majority of people don't need to be that, uh, that strict. But, uh, you know, I've had many... People in a similar situation to you who've uh, tried different things and uh, and thrive on a on a carnivore diet, which is really quite confronting as as a doctor. I mean, it's against everything that we've really been uh, been taught. But proof of the pudding. Some people will say, "Well, you know, it, you've only been on it for a few months and so on." But there are people out there who've been on it for a long, long time and uh, and seem to be still continue to do well. So yeah, it's really interesting. And we're going to have to. You know, I think there's a lot more. We need to start doing some more research on, on the carnivore diet because there's been very little uh, very little done. Um, yeah. That's a problem with nutrition research in general. I mean, the quality of the research is really poor and it's very hard to get funding for research. You know, uh, it's a two, the two bodies that fund medical research are the drug companies. Well, they're not interested in it. And then yeah. the government. You know, yeah, yeah. It's all the dietary guidelines. So, you know, we can't possibly uh, fund that. So um, and the trouble is the dietary guidelines uh, need to be... Uh, updated somewhat well and this is what i was going to ask you about so I, like I, i'm not qualified with, as a doctor or as a nutritionist so i don't have to abide by the guidelines that that are dictated but medical professionals do the army do when they're distributing nutrition hospitals do when they're delivering nutrition for patients schools are all guided by these these this law of nutrition so how does that? How do you manage that as a medical professional when you've stumbled across this information and it's it, it totally contradicts everything that you were told is true? Yeah, well, that, that's a huge problem for uh, for people like myself who who don't uh, believe that the guidelines are appropriate. And uh, and one way of doing that is that we, you know, obviously the next time the guidelines are revised, we'll we'll be doing our best to. Uh, to make sure they get uh, they get changed, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of people have a vested interest in the in the current guidelines. You know, with from the food industry to the medical profession to the dietetics dietetics profession, you know, they've all uh, been living off these guidelines for the last uh, the last four years. Um, fortunately, now there's an increasing amount of research which uh, now shows that uh, the low carb approach is uh, is beneficial. And in fact, more beneficial than the, than the low fat uh, approach. And yeah. uh, with more and more of that research uh, coming out, and particularly in uh, in diseases such as diabetes, I think that's the most exciting research that we're that we're seeing now is that these low carb programs are actually putting type two diabetes into remission, which is really exciting stuff. I mean, it's such a common disease with such horrendous sort of uh, uh, sequelae and uh, in different areas uh, leading to death. And the fact that we've now shown that uh, you can reverse that type 2 diabetes with a low-carb diet is really exciting. And more and more uh, doctors and more and more patients, you know, are actually driving this because they're hearing about it, they're trying out a low-carb diet, and lo and behold, they're getting off their diabetes medications and they're getting back to, uh, to normality. So that's yeah. slowly 
that's slowly uh, getting out there. Um, I wish it uh, was more widely understood and more widely known. I'm doing my best to spread the word, but uh, not that many people listen to me. Uh, thank you for having me on. But um, you they know, will, it, Peter. It, they uh, will. Don't you worry about that. It's a message that uh, that we need to keep getting out there. Unfortunately, as I said, there's a lot of people out there who uh, who don't want that message to get out there, who've got a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. You've got to remember, it took us 30 years to convince people about tobacco. Yeah. It's probably going to take us 30 years to convince them about sugar because of the yeah. vested interests that are involved. Yeah, it's, and it's, look, this has become, uh, you mentioned, you know, that, that, that responsibility to be able to, uh, what do I do with this this burden of knowledge? And and I, it's an unstoppable force within me now. I have experienced far too much of my own extraordinary health benefits, certainly in the last four years. And to run some numbers, I've lost at this point 26 kilos of body fat. I've put on eight kilos of, of muscle mass. And I you can test my bones, do your isotope readings, test my steroids, whatever. I've not taken any exogenous testosterone or any of this stuff it's just purely meat and water and uh like 99 percent carnivore for the last two years just going hardcore strict for the last two and a half weeks um but i got dexa scans done when i very first uh cut out uh bread or, or refined uh you know carbohydrate and gluten and in i got one three months later and i lost three and a half kilos of visceral body fat all of that nasty stuff that was packed around my organs. And, and I'm sure you would agree that's some of the worst fat for the human body in terms of affecting things like non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome and, and type 2 diabetes. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think visceral fat, the, the fat around our organs and our stomach is the, is the, uh, the real nasty uh, fat. And uh, interestingly, what we understand now is that fat is actually inflammatory. So the fat cells secrete inflammatory cytokines. So they are part of the cause of this inflammation. So it explains the link really between obesity and all these different uh, diseases in that uh, they, the, uh, the fat cells contribute to this chronic inflammation that's the underlying source of, uh, of so many of our health problems. So, uh, yeah, if you can reduce your visceral fat in particular, uh, then that is uh, enormously beneficial to your uh, to your health, no doubt about that. Yeah, and I think some of the the, the fight back that I get, and I've, I've worked very hard not to try and tell anyone what to do, and I'm like, buggier, I'm just going to lead by example as much as I can. People always say, and this is just a limiting belief of their own, that, that there's so much information, what do I believe, the animals, you know, like we're supposed to have, go plant-based or whatever, What's a simplified way of just going, this is how you do it? Well, I think the simplest way to look at it is to eat real food. You know, if you can avoid anything that's processed or in a packet or uh, in a, in a uh, can or anything like that and just stick to real food, then you won't go far wrong. And that real food can be, can be a whole variety of different things. It can, be, it can be meat and fish, but it doesn't have to be meat and fish. You know, it can be vegetables, it can be fruit, it can be dairy, um, it can be nuts and seeds and, uh, and so on. Just, you know, we've got to remember that 80% of processed foods have added sugar. Uh, most of them have uh, added oils, they have preservatives, they have uh, emulsifiers. I mean, they're... They're hardly worthy of being called food, some of these things. You know, they're, they're chemical concoctions, you know. They have 30 ingredients. I mean, you know, tell, that, that's not a food. You know, that's a chemical concoction. Um, and, you know, we just don't need that, you know. Now, obviously, you know, uh, processed carbohydrates and, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, polyunsaturated fats and all those things combined, that, and the big advantage is it's very cheap. You yeah. know, I mean, if you want to eat cheaply, you go to Macca's every night. You know, it doesn't get any cheaper than that. But ultimately, we pay the price down the track with our, with our health. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's the message that we've got to get, get across to people. But, um, yeah, we can, uh, we can eat cheaply. But uh, ultimately, you know, we're gonna, uh, it's going to cost us in the long run. Yeah, and there's, look, there's huge amounts of waste associated with this stuff as well. And I, I'd like to say that the, this way of eating that I've been eating specifically the last 16 days i haven't thrown away a single thing all the leftover bones from the t-bones go into a into the freezer and are made into a, a bone broth stock 
which I then reduce down and drizzle over my beautifully cooked steak. It's one of the greatest <laughs> things I've ever, ever put in my mouth, Peter. And, yeah. and in terms of like some of the benefits of taking your nutrition and your life back into your own hands and becoming your own superhero are uh, increased energy and vitality and that, that lifting of brain fog that you talk about and the drive to, to get up every morning and go and exercise. And, and people say to me, yeah, but Laban, you're, you're an exercise nut. You're, you know, I firmly believe, and I wasn't, I've only started running in the last two years and I wasn't. And the reason I firmly believe that this has happened is that I have this force, this energy that courses through my veins on a daily basis that propels me to move my body in the same way that our ancestors would. And, and I get antsy if I don't do something every day. And I've gone from averaging, you know, 14, 13,000 steps a day to about 21,000 steps a day. I can't help it. Yeah. It's interesting because people say you've got, to, uh, you've, you've got to exercise to lose weight. I actually think you've got to lose weight to exercise. Yeah. And, um, you know, once you do lose weight, you, as you say, you feel so, you've got so much energy. You feel as though you want to be doing things. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Um, I wouldn't have, I used to hate exercising, you know, even though I was into sport and everything like that. I love playing sport, but I hate, I'd hate just doing exercise for the sake of it. Yeah. You know? but, uh, now I exercise every day and, and look forward to it and enjoy it. And uh, just because I think I've, uh, I've lost that weight and, uh, and I've got so much more energy and, uh, and so on. So, yeah, it, it changes your life. There's no doubt about it. And I know, you know, people keep saying that, oh, it's changed my life. But, that's the reality. I mean, I have people come up to me in the street. People send me emails, send me text messages. You know, oh, thank you so much. You know, you've changed my life. And I thought, oh, you know, no one ever said that when I fixed their knee or their ankle or, uh, <laughs> or whatever back in the day. I mean, and, and um, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, it really does change people's lives. And that sounds very melodramatic and, oh, you know, big noting and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, that, that's, that's the way it is. And, uh, um, and from a as a doctor, it's so rewarding. I mean, it's just to know that you've had this effect on uh, on people. You might have reversed their diabetes, or they've lost weight, or they've or they've helped their mental health. That's another interesting area, you know, mental health and nutrition and so on. I mean, um, that's incredibly rewarding for uh, for me as a as a practitioner to know because uh, you know basically that that's why you do medicine. You know, that's why you become a doctor because you actually want to actually, you know, make a difference and, and make people better. And uh, and in all the years, in, in the 40 years I've been uh, been practising as a doctor, you know, this is really the, the the thing that's made the biggest difference to my patients and that's why I'm uh, I'm passionate about it and I want to spend the rest of my professional life anyway and uh, doing everything I can to promote this uh, this concept. Yeah, well, you've, you've nailed it. With that mental health side of things, Peter, that's, that's one of the major things. If someone actually held a gun to my head and said, you must pick one of all the many benefits that you've received from adopting this, this eating protocol, this lifestyle, it'd be the mental health. And as someone who never really battled with mental health um, that I was aware of, not in the traditional anxiety or depression, that kind of thing, I've always had a pretty good disposition about myself. But certainly in my mid-30s, coincidentally, when my soft tissue injury started happening, my mental health uh, the day after, you know, having a few beers the night before, you know, as a, as a you know, recreational drug user on occasion, the, the, it would take a week or so to recover from that. And having eliminated all of that stuff out of my diet now, and as someone who suffered from an autoimmune disease, I had GERD for 17 years, which I was on medication for, there's something happening in my stomach that's that's really interesting it's been happening for a couple of years and it's in the last 16 days it's starting to course through the rest of my body and i think from a biological point of view we know now that most of the dopamine serotonin that the body generates comes from within the gut and it sounds woo woo and it sounds whatever but my mental health for the last two years has been 10 times better than it's ever been and it's coincided into me being the most productive that I've ever been in the last two years. And I foster better interpersonal relationships and I attract better people into my life, people that want to lift you up. And, and you, you start to sort of go, you know, woo, woo, woo. But it's had such a profound effect on my own life that I'll be damned if I'm going to change the way that I'm doing this. 
and you can pull that stake out of my cold dead hands if you're going to try and ban it. So, you know, this is just N equals one, but I'm not the only one that's, that's experiencing this kind of crazy stuff. No, I think that the mental health uh, issue is a really interesting one and there's increasing evidence now of the effect of diet on mental health and there's, uh, there's been some great work done uh, done down at Deakin University uh, here in Victoria and uh, um, and they've looked at the effect of diet on, on depression and anxiety and, and found that uh, improving a diet, you know, going on to a Mediterranean-type, uh, low-carb-type diet uh, can have a dramatic effect on uh, effect as good, if not better, than any any medications that uh, that you might go on to, and uh, and it seems probably that uh, that mental health may well be a disease of chronic inflammation uh, as well, chronic inflammation of the of the brain. I I had an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, in, the, in the coffee queue at uh, at uh, university where I do a little bit of work, and uh, <clears throat> a girl came up to me and said, uh, "Oh, Dr. Brooklyn," I said, "Yeah." She said, oh, you know, "I enjoyed your lecture the other day." I said, "Oh, that's nice," and. Uh, and she said, oh, but that's not what I want to talk to you about. And I thought, oh, God, you know, what, have I, what have I done here? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and she said, um, she said, oh, my husband and I are massive cricket fans. And um, because of you in 2014, we, we went on to a low-carb diet. And uh, my husband's uh, been bipolar all his life and uh, he's now off all his medication and uh, you've changed our lives. And I just want to say thank you. Wow. I thought, wow. Oh, you know, I mean... To have that effect just on one person makes it all sort of uh, worthwhile. And it just shows that, uh, you know, changing diet can have a massive impact on, on so many different areas that, I, to be honest, I would not have believed. If you told me this 10 years ago, I'd have thought, you're, this is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. You know, you're a, you know, get some science. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, medicine, you know, medicine knows these things and, you know, we can't have been wrong all this time. And, uh and this has just blown me away. I just would never have believed it. I was the the most traditional conservative doctor. You know, doctors basically believe everything we're taught in medical school, and we keep that belief until we till we die. And uh, and I've now realised that you know half of everything we get taught in medical school turns out to be wrong. You know, we just have to work out which half. <laughs> and, oh, uh, and I'm starting to work that out now. So really, you know, people who know me just can't believe that this very traditional conservative uh, doctor has become, you know, s- seemingly quite, uh, you know, quite radical and, uh, and, and alternative. Where, but to me, it's just, it's just very obvious, and both from my own experience, from other people's experiences that I know, and from everything I've read. I, I read everything there is to read about diet. I probably spend two, three hours a day reading journal articles, uh, newspaper articles, you name it. I'll read it, you know, all the crap stuff, all the good stuff. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the more I read, the more convinced I am that we've just got it so wrong and we've got to change. That's so great, uh, Peter, and, and we are very thankful and blessed that you are on this crusade. And, and, and I'll tell you what, some people aren't quite so benevolent about this whole link between food and mental health. And I'll share with you a story uh, of something that happened to me late last year. I took a short-term contract uh, as a uh, working in recruitment with a company that shall remain unnamed for, for the sake of this story. At least to say they were quite a large super fund that started with C. And I'd been there for about four weeks and because of my diet, quite often I would sit in the cafeteria and eat my one to two meals a day, which might be piled high full of steaks or meat, meat patties or whatever it might be. And so it's not surprisingly, people would come up to me and say, hey, what's going on there? Like, I thought this stuff was supposed to kill you. And if people ask me, I'll happily tell them anything they want to know. And I had had multiple conversations with uh, many of my colleagues at this time. And I got pulled into a meeting room a couple of days before my contract was due to end. And my manager at the time said to me, uh, I'm sorry, Laban, we've had a formal complaint. And I said, oh, wow, like, uh, what for? And she said, and I quote, Peter, she said, someone that you were in a conversation with took offence to the fact that you linked mental health and nutrition together. And I said, can you just repeat that back to me? And she said, so I made sure. Oh, that's right. And they were very... 
very specific about saying that I wasn't being fired, but my contract was being concluded early. And then after all the formalities were done, and I could clearly see that this person was quite stressed by having to deliver this news to me. And I had no idea who the person was. And I said to her, do you know what? She said, what? I said, I'm right. And she just had a big wry smile come onto her face. And I grabbed my things and I walked out of there and I went, holy God, this is what we are up against in this fight to try and get people feeling how we've evolved to feel. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Uh, isn't it extraordinary? Oh, well, their loss, their loss. So, but you know what? It's just empowered me to continue the fight. Like, I'm um, just the, the, the can's open. The can's open. And um, I've spoken to you about uh, a gentleman that I'm working with at the moment. Uh, I do some accountability coaching. And in the process of getting to know this particular gentleman, um, he's got a very, very pronounced stutter and has had, had all his life. And we were able to get comfortable enough to a point where we were discussing it. And I asked him whether he might be um, interested in hearing or seeing or reading some information, some anecdotal stuff only with regards to some people that have had success in improving their own cognitive function and speech through the adoption of a low carb diet. And there's certainly been some medical literature around um, therapeutic uh, ketogenic diets for um, seizures and epilepsy. Is that a fair thing? Yeah, well and, recognized. Yep. And so we've been recording our, our video sessions and it's been two months he's adopted a carnivore diet. He's been about 97% strict. He's had the occasional cheat meal here and there. But it'll be really interesting to see what the result of that is because he's agreed to do a 15-minute keynote um, at one of my talks later in 2020 so to, to talk about stuttering and I'm not coaching him to try and cure the stuttering but wouldn't it be interesting if Very it improved his stuttering like yeah. what else does it affect yeah and, and and people look you know look at you a bit strangely because it does affect so many things but you sort of think oh maybe I shouldn't say that but I'll think I'm you know I think the low carb fixes everything but it doesn't fix everything, but it sure as hell fixes a lot of things. And um, so, yeah, it, I, I can see people thinking, oh, you know, that crazy Brooklyn guy thinks, you know, thinks it does everything. Um, but I, it just never ceases to amaze me that, uh, you know, people come and say, oh, you know, you talked about your GERD, your, you know, your digestion problems, um, mental health, uh, Parkinson's disease. You know, a friend of mine's dad had uh, Parkinson's disease and, they, and he, he rang me and said, can you do anything about my dad? You know, he's just staring at the wall. He used to swim a kilometre a day and walk the dog every day and so on. Now he just sits on the couch and stares at the wall. And and uh, and, and he actually said, can we get him on the low-carb diet? I said, yeah, let's try it. And uh, the dad himself rang me a few months later and said, you know, I just want to say thank you. I said, what for? He said, oh, I swam a kilometre yesterday and, uh, you know, I'm back to uh, back to doing everything I used to do. My son rang me and said, yeah, we actually think he's a nicer person than he was before he started. But, uh, um, you know, things like that. Um, it's so many different conditions uh, seem to be helped by, uh, by removing all these inflammatory dietary components and, uh, and getting into a sort of a pure, real food sort of a diet. Because so much of this stuff wasn't around two generations ago. In my grandparents' yeah. generation, you know, they didn't have a lot of these issues. Um, and, you know, what's changed? Really, the only thing that's changed is diet. People keep saying, oh, we're, we're exercising less. Well, we're not actually exercising uh, less. Uh, well, you aren't anyway. But uh, <laughs> um, you know, we're exercising about the same as we did a generation or two ago. In those days, it was more work-related. Now it's more leisure-related. So yeah. what's really changed is, is food, in particular processed and ultra-processed foods. And that's a big change, and that's been a disaster. And uh, we've just got fatter and sicker for 40 years, and enough's enough. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Peter. And I, and, and I love that you share these stories. And I, and I hope that people are listening to this and, and it's piquing their interest. Uh, it's challenging at times when you don't have a, a banner of a medical professional or whatever. So um, it's really empowering to see someone with such an illustrious medical background um, talking about this stuff so openly. And, and, you know, the impact that this will have probably won't be realised until long after we're gone. And 
I certainly see you, and I know that you're part of the low-carb down, down under um, fraternity as well, um, which are a global network of like-minded individuals. Um, I know there was a bunch of talks that have been postponed due to the current lockdown situation. Is there anything that's planned major that's of interest that you're going to be involved with in the coming weeks, months or years? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, stuff happening. Uh, I just did a conference presentation uh, yesterday, recorded it for a lifestyle medicine uh, conference in a couple of weeks' time. Paul Mason, who you mentioned before, is putting together a, uh, a low-carb uh, online conference for, uh, for June. So yeah. uh, I'll let you know that and you can uh, let your, uh, your listeners uh, know about that. And uh, I'll be speaking at that and Tim Noakes and a whole bunch of uh, people will be uh, producing uh, an online conference uh, then. So that's uh, the short-term uh, exciting uh, activities and Sugar by Half continues to, uh, to be pretty active in, in all the things we're doing and so on. So, yep, plenty to keep you busy. And just on that Sugar by Half, for anyone in the corporate game that's interested to know a little bit more, explain just what we're hoping to achieve with the Sugar by Half. Well, we've got a number of different programs, but one of which is our corporate program uh, that we've just uh, launched. Uh, well, we're supposed to be in the middle of our first corporate program now, but that's been been postponed. So that's basically a, uh, a program where we go into a, a company, uh, really uh, give them as much as, uh, as, as they want, but generally... Uh, uh, some initial talks to uh, to the staff, and then we've got a uh, a six week program that we call Hit Sugar for Six, um, and uh, which is a uh, with a booklet and um, uh, lots of online uh, activities and uh, support to for people who want to uh, to tackle their their health and to reduce the amount of uh, sugar and uh, and processed food that they have. And uh, that's a pretty exciting uh, program. And any uh, any businesses that would like to uh, to take that on. They can uh, they can contact me at uh, at sugar by half Peter at sugarbyhalf.com. So uh, that uh, we'll be happy to uh, to talk to them about that. Brilliant, and I'll link that down in the description box below for all the YouTube viewers as well. And Peter, I'm very conscious of your time. You are a busy man, saving the world one low carb person at a time. But there's one particular thing that I'd really love to know. You've been the sports medicine doctor on a couple of Olympic Games and you were directly involved with the year that Kathy Freeman won her gold medal and, and were her personal doctor, from what I understand. Can you share that story with us, please? Oh, well, yeah, that was a pretty amazing event. I was actually the... The uh, the team manager of the athletics team in uh, in in Sydney. I'd been the doctor the previous uh, time, and they uh, they uh, they promoted me or demoted me or was <laughs> the case. <laughs> and um, so it was. Uh, I mean, the whole Sydney Olympics was an amazing experience. And um, but Kathy, uh, it was a unique time, really. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a you know, historian, a student of the Olympics, and and. And I'm, I believe that there's never been anyone in the history of the Olympics who's been under as much pressure to win a gold medal as Cathy Freeman was in, in Sydney. Uh, for those uh, old enough to remember, you'll, you'll remember that, uh, you know, she was really the face of the Games. Um, she was uh, probably our, our only realistic gold medal chance in the biggest event of the Games in athletics. Um, she uh, uh, was a current world, uh, world champion. Um, and, you know, she was female, she was Indigenous, and, you know, in case anyone didn't think there was pressure on her, <laughs> then let's get her to light the flame at the opening ceremony, just uh, really sort of ramp up the pressure a little bit more. So, uh, you know, enormous pressure on, on her to uh, to do that. And um, and quite remarkable the way that she uh, she managed that that pressure. I don't think there's too many people in the world who would have coped with, the, with that pressure. She had this amazing ability to sort of tune out and just sort of uh, it is to go back into her own little little world and just let the rest of the world sort of pass her by. And a lot of that used to annoy people and, you know, they'd say, oh, she's a bit, you know, vague or she's, you know, but it, that was just her way of, uh, of coping. She went into her inner circle and she had some really good people around her supporting her, particularly her coach, Peter Fortune and, and, and others. And um, she was amazing the way she handled it. And then when she came out on the track that night, you know, in her uh, – in her suit, you know, uh, which, you know, had never been seen before. And uh, yeah. you think the, as the, the manager of the team, of course, I would have known all about that suit, but the, clearly I wasn't very important because I knew nothing about it. Um, I've got one sitting on my wall here, but I certainly knew nothing about it beforehand. But, um, you know, and, and she managed to win that that gold medal. It wasn't in her fastest time ever or anything like that, but it was 
it was a great run and, and it was good enough to uh, to win. And um, and then, uh, again, you know, some people will remember that what happened afterwards because, you know, most times when you win an Olympic gold medal, you know, if you're Usain Bolt, you know, you, you prance around, you jump up and down and you, you grab a flag and, you know, you're posing, you know, doing his poses and things like that for the, for the media and so on. But what did Cathy do? She sat down on the track, put her head in her hands and just sat there. And I remember, you know, I was just past the finish line myself and, uh, and I was thinking, come on, yeah, get up, Kathy, get up, get up, come on, you know, get going. And, and she seemed like she sat there for hours. You know, it was only probably 30 seconds, but it was just so overwhelming for her, I think. And then one of my jobs was to basically look after the athletes after they finished and take them through, you know, media and drug testing and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I was basically Kathy's minder then for the next three or four hours afterwards, which uh, was wow. pretty amazing experience you take her through the, the media and then up to you know be interviewed by bruce and then to see her family and uh and uh and then um and then you know get ready for the medal ceremony and then then down to drug testing and i, and I remember sitting in drug testing and uh and thinking you know this is the most bizarre experience the whole country is going crazy you know you've had all these freeman parties it was freeman night you know and there's all these freeman parties everywhere and people are celebrating and here am i sitting there with this little girl you know, who's, we're just chatting away about where we're going to go on holiday after the Olympics and things like that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, this is the most bizarre experience that, you know, and I felt so privileged that, you know, here was I sitting there with, uh, with Cathy while, uh, while, you know, she was the, the hero of the country and it's been voted Australia's greatest sporting moment ever and I was very fortunate enough to be there. I actually had the gold medal in my pocket for about three hours, you know. Wow. <laughs> and it can be a bit vague. I thought maybe I could get away with it, but uh, no. <laughs> But um, I caught up with Kathy recently, and we had a bit of a laugh about uh, about all that, and, uh, and reminisced about uh, those experiences and so on. So it was lovely to be able to share that uh, share that with her, and she's an amazing person. And as I said, I don't think there's anyone else in history who's been under as much pressure as her. And the fact that she was able to cope with that was just unbelievable. So uh, yeah, very special day in my life and the life of uh, Australian sport, really, and obviously in, in Kathy's life as well. Wow, what an extraordinary story, Peter, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, Peter's book, There's a Fat Lot of Good, available online and in all major bookstores, Peter. Not that anyone should get there. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, probably online, man. Yeah, might be on those remainder, you know, half price remainder. uh, (laughs) (laughs) The book grocer. So I'll I'll attach some links through um, for all the stuff that we've talked about. It's been an absolute pleasure. An absolute delight and I would love to revisit this and I'll bring my full panel of blood and lipids and testosterone and thyroid and B12 that I got uh, taken last week and I'll be happy to, to, to break those down with you, Peter. If there's anything you'd like to say before we go, I'm happy to wrap this up. No, no, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you, uh, getting to know you over the last few months, uh, Lavin, and uh, look forward to uh, trying to spread this word uh, in the future. Have a blessed day, everybody. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.